Philippians 2 is where we're at. We're going to read 12 through 18. We covered 12 and 13 last week, but I'll read those two verses just as a matter of review, and then we'll hit the next uh, few verses. This is, Paul's going to encourage this church to have harmony for the world's sake and for Paul's own sake, is really what Paul's going to say this morning. And I'll remind you of of kind of the big picture. So we're going to focus in on just a few verses, but let's get big picture here. Paul started in chapter 1, verse 27, saying, have a life that meshes with the good news of Jesus. Have a life that matches the message of Jesus. And he begins to tell them how they would do this. And he's walked through being humble and being lowly in mind and esteeming other people better and just kind of taking the, the job that no one else wants and, and not having strife and not vainglory and not being prideful and, and to take your own spiritual maturation seriously and to, and to work at that and to do that with a, a very serious mind. And he's walked through all of this And he's continuing kind of the same line of thinking. He's going to give us some new thoughts, but all in the same line of thinking. So let's uh, read verse number 12. Wherefore, my beloved, or you could say my dear friends, Paul loved this church dearly, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Last week we talked about it. Paul's saying, look, I'm I'm not around you anymore, so take responsibility for yourself. Take responsibility for your spiritual growth and be serious about this. Have a very sober mind when it comes to this. And verse number 13, it's God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Thank the Lord for that. God works inside of us and energizes us. Verse number 14, do all things without murmurings and disputings that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world holding forth the word of life. Why? So that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. And for the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Well, this morning is pretty simple. I have three takeaways for you based on this passage of Scripture. Takeaway number one is this. Be humbly grateful, not grumbly hateful. Paul says in verse 14, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Murmuring is the idea of complaining or grumbling. Disputing is the idea of arguing, being argumentative with other people. And we're to live consistent with the good news of Jesus. And part of that life is not grumbling and not arguing. I hate to get straight to brass tacks right out of the gate, but it's just, you can't help but do it with this verse. Paul is saying, don't be a cry cry. Don't run around grumbling and arguing all the time. I had, I had a buddy throughout college who's one of the most upbeat people I've ever met, and he just had this knack for picking up on your complaining and pointing it out to you, which is really annoying because it was all the time, but he would oftentimes say, you want me to go get you a Whamburger and some French fries? And that was his way of saying, like, why are you complaining? Like, why are you crying about this? Why are you grumbling about this? And if we're honest, many times we just need to take the pacifier out of our mouths and give God praise and glory and not cry and grumble and complain about things. It's estimated that 40% of our conversation is spent on grumbling and complaining and being negative about things. 
In case you doubt that statistic, I'm going to prove it this morning. I went through some of your social media pages and I took some screenshots. We're going to put, I'm just kidding, I'm not. But you got scared, didn't you? You got scared. Because you know what you posted this week. You know what you put on there. Traffic is so bad this morning. It took me an extra five minutes. I can't make it to work. I didn't get to get my coffee. I hate my life, you know. Forget, you know, not I have a job. Thank you, Lord. Not I have a car. This is awesome. I don't have to walk to work. No, I'm going to grumble and complain about it. Not, you know, oh, there was a wreck and it caused some traffic. Pray for the person. Maybe they're, they're seriously injured. No, that, where would the fun be in that? I want to let the world know the negative things that are in my life and grumble and complain about it. And we, we complain about the silliest things. These new shoes are so uncomfortable. They're just not broken yet. Like, seriously, we're complaining about our new shoes? I mean, new car smell just gives me a headache. I just can't stand it. Like, you got a new car. And you're choosing to complain about the headache from the new car smell? Like, it's just, it's goofy, it's silly. But we fall into this trap of complaining and crying about everything. We oftentimes will buy a product from a company, it's not what we thought it would be, or maybe there was a defect in it. And instead of telling the company, like the people that actually may want to hear about it and could fix the defect, what do we do? We cry to 10, 15 different people all around us, but we never tell the company that it could actually do something about it. Our coworkers complain to us. You know, the, the, the business just rolled out a new plan, and you may even think it's a good plan. Like, I can't believe that plan. It's going to be a train smash. And you just kind of jump on the back. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be terrible. It probably will be bad. Yeah, I didn't think of it that way. I, th- I had some positive thoughts, but now I see what you're saying. That is, that is horrible. <laughs> and we fall into this trap of just this com- complete and utter pervasive just grumbling and arguing and complaining about things. Even the disputing. Paul said in Romans 14, I love the way he put it. He said, him that's weak in the faith receive you, but not to doubtful disputations. Doubtful disputations just basically means don't argue about tweedly dee and tweedly dumb. There's no reason to argue about this or to, or to lock horns about this. It's, it's pointless. It's an exercise in futility. Don't, the Old Testament word for this is froward. If you've ever read Proverbs, you'll see the word froward. You can think it means forward. You just got to switch two letters around. Froward means contrary and difficult to deal with. If you've had a 13 or a 14-year-old, you know exactly what that's like. They're many times contrary and difficult to deal with. But if you were to take the New Testament and to just kind of wring the Scriptures out, one of the thoughts that would emerge as you, as you wrung them out would be that Christians should be humble, loving, sacrificial, caring people, not strife, prideful, grumbling, complaining, arguing all the time. That's just not... It doesn't line up with the message of Jesus. It doesn't, it doesn't match his good news. And that's not supposed to be us. Paul said in Corinthians, he wrote to that church, and he told them not to murmur and not to grumble. And he said, don't murmur as some of them also murmured and were, and were destroyed of the destroyer. He's referencing Old Testament Israel that came out of Egypt and had this habit of complaining about everything. And he says, look, learn from them. These things happened unto them for in samples. They're written for our admonition. 
He says, this was an example. This is designed to help us. These people that just whined and complained about everything. Moses doesn't know what he's doing, and it's so hot, and I'm so tired, and I'm so hungry, and I'm so thirsty, and manna is getting really old. I don't want manna anymore. Moses, why is he up in that mountain so long? Get down here. It's taking forever. And there's giants in the land. We can't, we can't go in there. They're going to kill us. This is over. We can't do this. Constantly crying about everything. And what's interesting is that oftentimes if you read Exodus and you read Numbers, you find they're complaining about their circumstances, but God takes it very personally. And he says, it's not just that you're complaining about your circumstances, you are murmuring against me. Who put you here? Who gave you manna? Who sent Moses up the mountain? Who told you to go into the land where the giants are? I did this. So you're complaining about your circumstances and your lot in life, but you're actually complaining and murmuring against me. And where I put you and the station that I have for you, and he takes it very personally, and he continues to. God does not take this lightly when we murmur and grumble and complain. And part of our problem many times is that we think God owes us something. We think that we're due something from God, and when we don't get a complete and total clean bill of health, or when we don't get everything works out, and everything's roses, and everything's peachy, then all of a sudden... We, we start to complain and grumble and bicker and fight about it. And the honest truth is that as a Christian, you recognize, look at all that God has given me just in a spiritual sense, much less, I won't even talk about the, we're Americans and what we have in a physical material sense, but just in the spiritual sense, look at what all, ha, look at all God's given me and we should move through life knowing that life is a gift from God and anything better than condemnation and hell is a win. We don't really deserve any more than that. So the fact that we have more than that, we should be thankful. We should be humble, not grumbling and complaining all the time. Not, they took my seat. It's so cold. It's so hot. It's so humid. Which, by the way, I've lived in some humid places. It's not humid in Pittsburgh. So stop saying that, people. But it's so, it's so humid. It's so terrible. It's, you know, the pins didn't win. The, whatever it may be. I wish I had this. We move through life easily wounded, always pouting. People ask you how you feel and you give them an organ recital. That's not supposed to be. We're not supposed to be grumbly, complaining, bickering people. And Paul wants these Philippian people to have a Christ-like temperament. He wants them to exhibit Jesus. And he's saying, look, when you're grumbling and complaining and arguing, you're actually showing some carnality. And what you're doing is revealing a dissatisfaction with God. And this is, it's not okay. And this can easily overtake us and become a very embittering habit that marks our life and marks our social media print, footprint and marks the conversations that we have with people. And we can become known as complainers. Proverbs tells us that death and life are in the power of the tongue. I can promise you today, you will have some things that you can choose to be grateful for, or you can have some things that you will choose to complain about. Every day is going to bring forth both, and you can choose which one you want. You can choose life or death. Today, you can go out to some food trucks and you can have a, a good time and some fellowship and be done and say, hey, that was great. Or I promise you, you'll be able to figure out that some line was long or some food wasn't exactly what you thought it would be or they got your order wrong. Or You can find something to be grateful for or something to complain about in every, in every situation of life. And many times if we're honest with ourselves, we choose that which is negative. Why? Well, I think Matthew tells us out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
It's not just that we need to twist our arm behind our back and make our tongues nice now and bridle our tongues. The fact is we need a heart change. We need something to hit deep down home and for us to recognize who we are and what we have in Jesus. And I hope that this morning it does hit your heart. I hope that these verses attack your heart and help you to see what you have and that grumbling and arguing and bickering is just, it's not okay for a Christian to exhibit that behavior. <coughs> I read a book, part of a book, a couple weeks ago called The Fine Art of Friendship from Ted Ingstrom. It was written back in the 80s. And he gave this story of a husband and wife, and the husband was paralyzed from the neck down. And his wife would care for him as he needed someone to care for him. And the guy was able to dictate a letter to his child who was very young that he knew would grow up. And he wanted his child to see his mother in a positive light for all that she did. So he decided to describe a date night with his wife to his son. And he wrote in the letter, I I won't read it all to you, but he basically says, for us to go on a date, your mom dresses me and then she shaves me and then she brushes my teeth and then she combs my hair. And then she puts me in the wheelchair and then she gets me to the car and then she opens the car door then she puts me in and then she makes sure I'm comfortable and she closes my door then she goes around to her and then she drives me to the place and she repeats the process all over again and then we get into the restaurant she makes sure I'm comfortable and she she lifts up the the bottom of the wheelchair thing here so I'm comfortable and then and then she feeds me and she cares for me and then she does it all over again she puts me back in the car and transports me around and brings me back home and when we get all done with the night she looks at me and says honey thank you for taking me to dinner. And the guy wrote and he said, I just, I don't know what to say when she says that. But I read that and I thought, I think we can learn a lesson from this loving, humble, non-murmuring woman. I don't know who she is, but I think there's a lesson to be learned. That many times we move through life complaining, but we don't, we really don't have much to complain about. And it tends to make us hard, mean, little people. Arguing with other people tends to inflict pain on others. And what happens is that these things end up destroying and whittling away at marriages and jobs and churches. They end up being termites in relationships that eat at them and destroy them when it's all said and done. And Paul says, look, I want you to live in line with the gospel. I want you to live a message that's consistent with Jesus. He's already enumerated many different things that they should do. And now he gets to some new content. Verse 14 says, don't murmur and don't dispute. And many of us are very prone to this behavior, including yours truly. So I, I will take the responsibility myself, including yours truly. Studying through this over the past couple weeks, there have been several moments where I needed to repent they say, Lord, I'm wrong. Like, this isn't okay. But I, if you're like me, you, you try to lie to yourself and tell yourself, well, it's just the way that I am. I just can't help it. This is, you know, and it, it just doesn't, it doesn't fly. Personally, I'm a, I'm a relatively optimistic person. I tend to see the glass half full. I tend to be pretty upbeat and positive. But below the surface, I tend to be very critical I don't always express those thoughts, but I think them a lot. I tend to be critical. I tend to be someone who's argumentative. This isn't an excuse, it's just reality. I grew up with four brothers and no sisters. So I have two brothers above me, two brothers below me. We were extremely competitive, and with that competitive nature came a lot of arguing over stupid stuff. 
who got to sit in shotgun. You know, we, we, we literally fist fought multiple occasions over who got the front seat. Silly games that we would invent. It, it became just kind of this normal pattern of behavior. And then I married my wife, who has a peacemaker sort of family, and I realized our family was really weird and jaded. <laughs> that wasn't normal. Like, I thought it was normal. You know, it's just fighting. Who cares? You know, you get over it, and it doesn't really matter. It does matter. It's inconsistent with the message of Jesus. We're not supposed to be grumbling and complaining and arguing with each other all the time. It's a big deal. And many times we tell ourselves, it's not a big deal. No, everyone does this. That's exactly the point that Paul's going to make. Read verse 15 with me. Do this. Don't murmur. Don't, don't argue. Why? So that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. Everyone does do this. You're right. This is why it's so important that you don't do this, because then you stand out. Then you shine as lights in a dark world. It's supposed to be different than everyone else. It's supposed to be against the backdrop of my coworkers and my neighbors or my, my unsaved relatives or maybe even your relatives that know Jesus, that, that they complain and they argue and they do this. And when you don't, now you stand out and, you, and you're set apart as something altogether different. And this gives us the second takeaway from this passage. Paul is saying, live and give the gospel. Let me just walk through this piece by piece so you can see what he's saying. He says, we do this. We don't grumble. We don't argue with each other. We don't murmur and dispute. Why? So that we can be blameless and harmless. So that we can have observable conduct to the world around us that is right and is innocent in heart. Not wicked, but good and wholesome. Not volatile, not unkind, not constantly on edge. The sons of God. Behavior that's actually becoming of God's children. Bearing the name of God honorably. Grumbly and grumpy are fitting names for the seven dwarves, but they're not for the children of God. And I know that grumbly wasn't one, just grumpy, but you get it. You are representative of God, and do you, read the Bible cover to cover, find me a place where God grumbles and complains and argues with people. You say, well, he's God. He just gets to tell him what to do. Yeah, I know. But find me a place where God grumbles and complains and argues with people. You won't find it. You're his representative. You're his ambassador. You say, well, no, I just tell people, look at God and, and be like God. No, you're supposed to be like God. You're supposed to represent him. But you get this. When you go to the airport and you have a problem with your ticket, who's more important to you? The president of the airline or the agent at the gates standing right there face to face with you? I dare say you don't care about the president of the airlines. You care about that person right in front of you and how they're treating you. When you are face to face with a lost world and people that don't know Jesus, really they're not all that interested in what the Bible says about God. But they do want to know you and how you live and what you say and what you do and you're representing him. So represent him well. It matters. As, as a son of God, he says without rebuke, live an exemplary life in the middle of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Surrounded by a whole bunch of people that don't know Jesus and don't want anything to do with him, and you're to be a beacon of light and hope that they need. You're to show them something different. You're to represent him well. You're to, 
You're to demonstrate the validity of the gospel to a world around you by the way that you live. Paul here is referencing Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel 12.3, where he told, he told the people that would live in light of the law of God that those that are wise would shine as the brightness of the firmament. Those that knew God's law and would apply it and live it out, that they would shine to the world around them. And Daniel is a great example of a man who, just, who did just that. In the middle of a Babylonian nation who did not know God and did not want God, but stood up and stood for right and stood for God and was a positive influence for him. So you're supposed to be light where there's darkness. You're supposed to be beauty in a world of ugliness. You're supposed to be life in a world that knows nothing but death. You're supposed to have words that are positive and are life-giving, not words that are deconstructing people and tearing them down and grumbling and complaining about everything. Jesus told his disciples this. He said, you're, you're the light of the world. The light that was come, Jesus, actually looks at his disciples and says, now you're the light of the world. You go shine. He says that men don't light a candle and put it under a bushel, but they put it on a candlestick so that the whole house can see. You don't light a light and then cover up the light. That's counterproductive. You light a light and you put it up so that people can see it. He says to them, let your light so shine before men. Why? So that they can see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Represent and shine that light so that people can see the Lord and that they can come to know him, be a beacon of truth. This is why unity and harmony, which is the overarching thought in this whole passage, this is why unity and harmony inside of a church is so important. Internal discord amongst Christian people diminishes the external proclamation of the gospel. When you're fighting with each other and grumbling and complaining and being divisive, that unity has a bearing on the gospel message that we share with people. And Paul is telling them, live the gospel so that people can see this, so they can know this, so they can come into a relationship with Christ, that your, your squabbling and your infighting actually tears at the heart of your testimony. He's trying to encourage them, don't do this. Live a life that's pure in front of people so that they can come to know Jesus. What do you think happens when someone who doesn't know Jesus sees a Christian who's argumentative and divisive and hard to get along with and a constant cry-cry? they form a poor opinion of Christianity. And you can't blame them for doing so. You would too. And Paul's saying, don't, don't do this. Live consistent with the gospel message. Shine as lights in the world. Live out the gospel. I read a devotional on Philippians by Max Licato, and he references the moon. And he says, the moon generates no light in and of itself. Without the sun, the moon is just a big gray rock. <laughs> it's It's nothing. But position the moon in such a way that it can reflect the sun, and all of a sudden it's a symbol of inspiration, it's a symbol of romance, it's something that provides us light in the night. And a Christian is supposed to not necessarily have something, some intrinsic worth that's inside of you, that there's all this goodness just bubbling inside of me, because we know that's not the case biblically, but you're supposed to position yourself in such a way that you can receive the Son of God, that you can reflect Jesus to other people around you and that you can shine to a world around you that needs that. And Paul even says at the beginning of verse number 16, holding forth the word of life. 
It's a unique way of saying, don't just live the gospel, give the gospel. Put it forward, give, give it out to people, be open-handed with it and be sharing it with people. Live the gospel, give the gospel, people need this. Your unity and your harmony and your lack of complaining and your lack of fighting with each other matters in this, so live it and give it to other people. Now let me warn you before I move on to takeaway number three, not everyone will appreciate this. All right, you gotta know that. Jesus said in John 3, and with his uh, talk with Nicodemus, that everyone that does evil hates the light. Why? Because his deeds should be reproved if he came into the light. Oftentimes you living different shows people that there's a deficiency in their own character and what they're doing. Now that can be attractive to people and attract them to the gospel. It certainly can. But you've got to know that can also be a turnoff and that people may not like you because of that. They're having a good old time running down the boss and criticizing everything in the company, and then you step in and you're seeing the positive and you're not criticizing and you're not jumping on their bandwagon, and all of a sudden they may not, they may not enjoy that. They may not want to be around you for that reason because they're just, they're just enjoying grumbling and complaining and being divisive all the time. Your three girlfriends may be running down their husbands, and when you choose not to, but you choose to actually say some positive things about your husband, they, they may think that there's a problem with you, Right? So know that when you exhibit this, it, it may not be always received well. That doesn't change what's right and wrong. You're still supposed to not grumble and not complain and not argue, but you have to know that. Sometimes it's attractive to people and I want what you got because that's, that's not inside of me. Let, me. let me talk to you. Other times people are turned off by it and they, because they, they know there's something deficient inside of themselves. But here it is. Be humbly grateful not grumbly hateful. You live and you give the gospel. And then Paul says this. I'm just going to put it this way. Keep on keeping on. Here's what he says at the end of verse 16, 17, and 18. Admittedly, there's a bit to untangle here. It's a little bit of complicated verbiage, honestly. But when you understand it, it's awesome. It's literally awesome. Holding forth the word of life. Why? Well, he told us, he told us why we want to do this. We want to do it for the world's sake. So we can shine to them. But now he's going to give us another reason. He's going to say, for my sake. Why? So that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Paul's going back to his deeply personal relationship with this church. And he's saying, Philippian church, he already, he already called them dear friends and, and beloved. And there's such a unique bond that he has with them. And now he's going to say, do this actually for my sake. Why? So that I can rejoice in the day of Christ. The day of Christ being the second coming of Jesus. That Jesus one day is coming back to earth. Literally, physically, bodily. He's coming back and he's saying, at the very end, I want to rejoice. When it's all over, at the very end, I want to be able to say, look, I poured into them and I gave myself to them and I wrote letters to them and I prayed for them and I, I invested in them and that wasn't in vain. These people took what I gave them and they took it seriously and they had a pattern of obedience that they had worked out and they continued to obey and they continued to go forward and I want you to keep on keeping on. I want you to take my words to heart. I want you to live this out so that I can rejoice at the end. I want this to continue to be exhibited in your life. I don't want it to be in vain. I don't want to waste my time on you. I don't want to waste my words on you. I want this to be an amount for something. Over Christmas break, my son and I, the oldest Brennan, we, I don't know who thought of it, he did, I did, I don't know, but we got this idea that we would take his big 
uh, building blocks are like big plastic Legos, basically. I forget what they're called exactly, but he has this tub of them that we were going to build a tower that was going to reach to the ceiling. So we didn't have enough to go floor to ceiling, but we put it like on the coffee table and it was able to reach to the ceiling. But we started to build, you know, we built this big base and then it got a little bit smaller, a little bit smaller and eventually all the way up and we, we barely had enough blocks and we made it reach all the way to the ceiling. And he's, you know, having fun, I'm having fun, it's great. And I turned my back for like 10 seconds. <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, that little three-year-old pushes over our tower like we just spent like an hour, an hour and a half building the, you know, leaning tower of Lego blocks. And here it is reaching to the ceiling. We're all proud of it. You know, I at least want to leave it there for a day or something. Like have some, have some pride here. But no, he pushes it over. It crashes. It scared me half to death. It crashes down and he's just laughing. He thinks it's the greatest thing in the world. Let's build it again. I'm like, no, I'm not building that again. That's vanity. Like I'm not building this so we can just push it all over. And part of what Paul's saying here is I'm not going to be with you any longer. We already, we already worked through that passage. I'm gone. Take responsibility for yourself. I don't want to turn my back and walk away and it all come toppling over. I don't want this to be in vain. I, I want this to amount to something. I, I, what we're building here, what we're working on here, I want to be able to get to the end. I want to be able to rejoice that you have taken this person, that you're continuing your pattern of obedience and you're working this out. And this is, this is not unique to, to Philippi. Paul says this in many of his letters. He says in Thessalonians, What's our hope? What's our joy? What's our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at our coming? You're our glory and our joy. Paul took a lot of stock in the people he invested in. He cared deeply for them and he wanted what was best for them and, and it caused him to rejoice greatly when those that he was trying to influence received the influence, received the admonition, received the instruction, and began to work on it in a practical, literal way that that encouraged Paul's heart. Then he says this in verse 17. This is the tangled up part that is really beautiful. He says, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. And for the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Paul is metaphorically pointing to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And in the Old Testament times, the Jews, they would offer a sacrifice. And Paul knows this well. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's as Jewish as a guy you've ever met. And they would offer a sacrifice, the primary sacrifice. And then to complement and to supplement the sacrifice, oftentimes they would offer an oblation or a drink offering that they would pour out on top of the primary sacrifice that's there. And Paul here is telling the Philippian people, he's recognizing and saying, I think you actually have the primary sacrifice. And I'm happy to be poured out on top of that because of your sacrifice. What he's saying is, and let's, let's work it backwards here. He starts with, with their faith. He says, as a direct result of your faith, you're serving and you're sacrificing. And I'm happy to be offered on top of that. I see that there's a connection between your faith in Jesus and now you're serving and you're sacrificing. And I even think that your sacrifice is probably even greater than mine. Paul, the guy who's in prison, suffering, probably about to die, that guy is looking at these Philippian people who are coming under persecution, who are suffering for Jesus, who are, who are living out the gospel and saying, look, I, I, I'm, I'm saying your sacrifice is greater than mine and I'm happy to pour myself out as a drink offering on top of you because of what you're doing. 
It's joyous for me. I will gladly do this and I will gladly give of myself because you're giving of yourself because something has actually impacted your heart and through faith you're serving and you're sacrificing and this is real to you. And what a beautiful lesson that for any spiritual leader, you can go, Paul, you can take me or Pastor Smith or Pastor Rouser or any spiritual leader, maybe someone in your life previously, it is a joy and it is so much easier for them to sacrifice and to give and to pour out their lives and to give of themselves when you are taking it seriously. When you are giving, when you are serving, when you are sacrifice, sacrificing, it makes it all the more easy for anyone else who's trying to lead in a spiritual way to say, look, I will gladly give of myself as well. I honestly can really connect and resonate with this verse because in my few years here at Harvest, it has been, it has been a joy. And there's, there, have there been long days? Sure. Have there, have there been tough conversations? Yeah, sure. Have there been mistakes that I've made and bumbled and fumbled through things? Have, have there been, has there been a lot of giving of yourself? Yeah, absolutely. But that's easy. Because honestly, I, I truly feel in my heart that we have a church family of people that want to take their spiritual growth seriously, that want to give, that want to sacrifice, that want to be a blessing, that want to be a good testimony, that want to, to, to give to missions and, and just be a blessing to our missionaries when they come in and on and on and on I could go, that there's a you are people who want to give and sacrifice and it makes it so much easier to every day say, you know what, I'll give of myself gladly, that's easy. But the opposite is true as well. Maybe you've been a part of a church where everyone was stagnant and everything was stale and no one wanted to grow. And I guarantee you, you chewed through pastors about every two or three years if you were a part of a church like that. Because a pastor comes in and it's not easy to give in that scenario. It's right for him to, but it's not easy for him to. Because there's, there's no mutuality. There's no reciprocation. And Paul is really commending this church. He's saying, based on your faith, you are serving and you are sacrificing. And I want you to keep it up. And I'll gladly pour myself out on top of that. I will gladly rejoice in that. I'll be a part of that. I'll give. I'll, I'll sacrifice willingly, easily for that. And he says, it's for this cause I joy. And I rejoice with you. And you too. You joy. And you rejoice with me. That we can have kind of a happy little party here. That we're all loving Jesus and serving Jesus and taking this seriously and sacrificing together. That we're all trying to live in, in light of the gospel of Jesus and to share his good news. That that's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing when everyone together, no matter who it is, that a church family is harmonized and they're unified. And they're saying, let's, let's sacrifice and band together and do this as a team. That that produces an energy and a joy that you just can't find elsewhere. And Paul is saying, look, keep on keeping on. I, I want to, at the end, I want to rejoice. You have a pattern of obedience. Continue to work it out. You, you're sacrificing, you're serving gladly. I'll continue to do the same and let's rejoice with each other that we do it. And if I could give you just like a, an easy takeaway here, it would just be harvest, keep it up. I'm not speaking necessarily to every individual. You may have your own individual things that you're working on, but as I look collectively, just as the church body as a whole, I would say, let's just keep it up. 
Let's continue to love each other. Let's continue to care for each other. Let's continue to serve each other and to prefer each other and to esteem them better and have lives of humility and to live the gospel and to give the gospel and not grumble and complain and fight with each other, but to be a family. And I truly feel that we do well at this. We probably could grow a little bit more, but I feel that we do well. And I would say, as Paul said to this Philippian church, let's continue to do this. Let's continue to live and to give the gospel and to live lives that are, that are serious about Jesus and in light of him. And if you can't honestly say of yourself that you're doing that, then I would say jump on the team. Jump on and start to do it. Because there is a joy and a rejoicing and a beauty that comes from living out the gospel message and doing that with other people. It's a beautiful thing. And Paul commends this church. He, a little bit of correction at first. Hey, make sure you're not complaining and you're not, you're not being grumbly hateful over here. And let's make sure we understand why we're doing this because we're a testimony to the world around us. But he also draws on a personal relationship and says, look, I, I want you to do this for me and I want to have joy in this and let's, let's, let's continue to be a team. Paul and the Philippian church, they were such a team. And he wants with all of his heart for that to continue. He wants for that to, to continue to roll forward and continue to to mount progress. So I tell you this morning, I don't know what hits you. <clears throat> Maybe you need to have a come to Jesus moment and say, Lord, I complain and fight way too much. And Lord, I want to change and I need your help to change me. I, over the past couple weeks, I've had a few of those moments myself. Maybe you need to say, you know what? I just need to understand why I do this. I do this for a world around me to show them Jesus and to hold forth the word of life and to give the gospel to them. Maybe it's just, you know what? There's a lot of people that are around me and I just need to keep on keeping on. There's other people that are sacrificing. There's other people that are serving. So that encourages me and I want to do it myself. Whatever it is, I pray that you'll leave here a little bit different than when you walked in. And that you'll take an admonition from Paul to this church that really is a beautiful passage.